uh, this summer as we finished the book of Joshua last week, where we spent some time in the book of Philippians. All right, all right, all right. So if you would turn with me to the book of Philippians, we're going to be spending time in chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Philippians chapter 1, the first 11 verses. One of the themes of this book is joy and thankfulness. And when I was reading this book, it just, those those themes kept popping out. And at one point, uh, a movie came to mind. Uh, I don't know if anyone has has seen Moana. Right? Now, Moana is about this girl who goes on an adventure to save her people. She has to find the heart of something, and it's all great, it's all good, it's Disney. It's magical. But at one point in the movie, Moana, who begins to embark on her adventure, uh, hits a storm at sea, and she finds herself stranded on an island. Quickly, she finds out that this is not by accident, that she is on the same island as Maui. He is a demigod in the movie who was also stranded on this island. Moana would learn that Maui was there to actually help her in her quest to save her people. But she would also learn that Maui was actually part of the problem. He's part of why she now has to go out and save her people. And so at this point in the movie, she angrily demands Maui to do exactly what she says. And Maui, if you've watched the movie, our confident, arrogant demigod doesn't take too well to this. He wants to remind Moana that her attitude shouldn't be one of grief towards him or anger, but of thankfulness, appreciating all that he's given to her and her people. And at this point, he will respond in song singing, you're welcome. Right? He says, okay, okay, I see what's happening here. You're face-to-face with greatness, and it's strange. You don't even know how you feel. It's adorable. Right? Open your eyes. Let's begin. Yes, it's really me. It's Maui. Breathe it in. Oh, we got, okay, Enoch. Okay. I know it's a lot. The hair, the bod. Oh, wow. <laughs> what can I say except you're welcome. Maui sings of his great feats, his, his accolades, and he reminds us that through those, we should have a spirit of thankfulness for him, which is why he says, you're welcome. Now, maybe you've never seen this movie, or even if you have, you feel like, oh, he's a pretty unrelatable character. But I actually think we all hold something very much in common with Maui. We like to be appreciated. We like to say you're welcome because it means someone said thank you. Our desire is to be as Maui Singh, to to be thanked. And we live our lives often shaping them this way. Waiting for those moments where people will appreciate us for our service, our contribution, for who we are. We want people to display thankful joy for everything that we bring to the table. Whether it's because of our our pride, our arrogance, or our insecurity, we want people to say thanks. As we come to the the book of Philippians, specifically chapter 1, these first 11 verses, the song that Paul will sing is not, you're welcome. It's, thank you. 
Thank you, God. And Paul's thanks won't be directed at himself, but towards the family God has given him. You see, Paul will flip the script in large part because of the example of Jesus. And he will display a spirit of thankfulness for others and a desire to see others grow and mature in Christ. What we read of in these first 11 verses will fit into bigger themes throughout the book of Philippians. As Paul calls us not to think so much about ourselves, but of Jesus and others. What that will mean here in these first 11 verses is Paul's exhortation to thank God for gospel family and pray Jesus would continue his good work in each other until the day of Christ comes. Let's read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. This is the word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of grace, with grace, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, praying for clarity, that you'd give us ears to hear what you were saying, that I would decrease and that Christ would be made so very big in our hearts and minds. In your name we pray, amen. So this letter was penned by Paul, who with Timothy in verses 1 and 2 write to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now Philippi is a place we learn about well before this letter would come to them. Philippi is a Roman colony in Eastern Europe and would be the first church that Paul would plant in Europe during his second missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 40. Paul and one of his partners at the time, Silas, would be actually making their way to Asia to revisit some of the churches they had ministered to. And the Holy Spirit would prevent them from doing that. A vision would be given to, to Paul, and a man in the vision would say, come here, we, we need you. And through that vision, Paul would believe God is calling them to preach the gospel in the area of Macedonia, which Philippi would be in. There they would meet a woman named Lydia who, would sell, who sold purple cloth. 
We read in Acts 16 that God would open her heart so that she could hear the gospel. And we see through the gospel, her and her, her whole family would be saved. As you read, we read of a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Paul would cast that spirit out, and Paul and Silas would then be beaten and put into jail for this. If you remember, later that night they'd be singing hymns, and an earthquake would hit and open up all the prison doors. The jailer then would look to commit suicide, seeing that he had failed at his job to keep the prisoners in jail. Paul would stop him, and through the proclamation of the gospel, the jailer and his whole family would come to know Jesus and be saved. This would be the beginnings of the church at Philippi, a church that Paul would grow deeply fond of over the years. The Christians in Philippi would also have a deep affection for Paul. Knowing that he was in jail, they would send Aphroditus with a care package for Paul. And this is where this letter comes out from. Paul would send Aphroditus, he would come with a care package back to Philippi to encourage the Philippians and to remind them of some really important truths. Now, some of you may be familiar with this, this book, or at least some of its passages, that you've probably seen on t-shirts, mugs, or bumper stickers, right? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion till the day of Christ. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. These are good and helpful, powerful passages to, to know and to even memorize. But I hope that as we spend time in Philippians, that you would see there is much more for us to have. A love for Jesus, coupled with a knowledge and understanding of Paul's intent for us throughout this letter. A letter that again highlights joy and service. All the while, Paul is imprisoned, in jail. And so this starts right here in these first 11 verses. Paul's first words show a thankful joy that brings him to prayer for his brothers and sisters. And so we're going to break this up into a couple sections. First, verses 3 to 8, thank God for gospel partnership brought by the good work of Jesus. And verses 9 through 11, Pray that Jesus continues that good work in us for the day of Christ. And again, hopefully the cue is the same as Paul's, that we would leave thanking God for our gospel family and praying for each other that Jesus would continue the work in us. Look at again uh, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Paul announces one of the most, again, obvious things you'll find in this letter. Joy in the midst of adversity. Joy in the midst of hardship and trial and difficulty. Clearly, the Philippians are troubled by Paul's circumstances. They're uneasy knowing that their brother has found himself in jail, imprisoned. 
Paul wants to make himself crystal clear. That in the beginning of this letter, he is saying, your concerns are not necessary. Paul's spirit, he's saying, I am thankful, I am joyful, and I am joyful because of you. It's amazing that in Paul's condition that he's writing these words. It would be easy for him, as we even consider the the whole of his ministry, the pain he's had to go through, that he can even communicate a joy. How low a valley he has found himself in again. But Paul's thoughts, and more so his prayers, are not about himself, therefore his gospel family. Paul has found reason to be thankful to God, even in trouble. And why is Paul rejoicing in them? We see right in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The apostles' joyful gratitude, it comes from an appreciation of the consistent support of, his minist- of their ministry and care for his needs. And this is from the very beginning of their Christian walk. That from the second the Philippians became believers, they walked with Paul. They cared for Paul. They helped Paul. And this partnership isn't just their financial support, but it's also their concern for his well-being. This is a partnership, a communion in the gospel that doesn't ultimately even serve Paul, but the work that Jesus is doing in and around him. Already in these first several verses, Paul is modeling for us what should be an appreciation for the family of God. That as those who have given our lives to, to Jesus, who walk with him, we recognize that the effort, that the mission, is not something we do by ourselves. It's done together, as a body. And Paul is saying that should make us thankful. Thankful that we are not alone. Thankful that there is work being done by our brothers and sisters right in our church. And I think Paul's words would have us even ask A question, when is the last time we expressed that thankfulness? We expressed joy for our family by name, as Paul does. Yes, to God, we go to God and thank him for each other, but when's the last time we've said to one another, I thank God for you. I thank God for your partnership in the gospel. When was the last time we did that? And I would encourage us, even if it was yesterday, to do it again. That Paul gives us an example here of the importance of going to one another and saying, thank you. Thank you for the way that you cared for me. Thank you for the way that you encouraged me. Thank you for the way you served those people. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Thank you for mourning with me. Thank you for rejoicing with me. I thank God for you. Thankfulness begets more thankfulness. And what this means practically is the encouragement that you are looking for often exists on the other side of you encouraging other people. Paul continues his joyful encouragement in verse 6, writing that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Hearing these words aloud, Lydia in the church of Acts, not our Lydia, would have known exactly what Paul is talking about. Again, in verse 5, Paul speaks of joyful thanksgiving because of the partnership since the beginning. When did that happen? That from the very beginning, Lydia would know of the good work Jesus had started in her. Where we read in Acts, or we saw in Acts 16, that it was God who opened her heart. God who began that good work in Lydia so that she could hear and receive the gospel. And in turn, her family could hear the gospel. Verse 6 pushes this thought further, that Paul is convinced that God, the same God who opened the heart of Lydia, who begins the work in us, that he will bring it to completion or perfection. Now understand, what Paul has in mind here is not the saving work of the cross. He's not talking about the forgiveness of sins. That work is one and done. You don't need Jesus to die for you every day, every time you sin. Yeah. You also don't need to think that every time you fall, and you will, that you move out of the forgiveness and grace that Jesus provides in his death. That was one time for all time. So even now when we seek forgiveness as Christians, we seek repentance when we are in sin, we go to God because we know that even as Christians, we can hinder our fellowship and our relationship with God. So when I wrong my wife, I do something dumb. Yeah, (laughs) happens pretty often. I don't apologize to Bree because I fear Bree's going to walk away from me and leave our commitment. That's not why I go and seek repentance and apologize to Bree. I do that because I have brought pain into our relationship. I have fractured it in my wronging of Bree. And so by seeking forgiveness, seeking repentance, I'm looking to repair our relationship. Not out of fear of losing her, but in a desire to repair and reconcile our relationship. And it's the same reason why we go to God. Not because we fear losing our salvation, but because we want to repair and reconcile. What Paul instead has in mind here is the sanctifying work. The the work of making you look more like Jesus that leads to glorification. The work of making you perfect in every way. This work that Jesus begins begins at salvation. And Paul is convinced, assured, and confident that Jesus will finish it. That he won't let you go, that you won't be left behind. Jesus will finish what he has started in you. And so even if you find yourself in a pretty discouraging season where things look a lot more down than up, where maybe you feel far from God or stunted in your relationship with him, where you're still dealing with the the same old things, the same sins, the same issues. What Paul is saying here is that God is not finished with you yet, that he has not given up on you, that he is working to finish you as one of his masterpieces. And this is something we could be encouraged by and even 
remind each other of that God is not done working in us. Paul feels justified in saying these things. Verse 7, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul's confidence is not based on empty things. His confidence is clearly seen in both the Philippians' continued gospel friendship and their defense and stance of the gospel. Paul's imprisonment would have been a a source of a lot of shame during that time. Still is. It would have been easy for these brothers and sisters to look the other way and say, well, if you're in jail, I mean, there can't be any good reason for you to be there. Instead, they choose to stand with Paul to even send, send care for him through another brother. And they continue to defend the same gospel that put Paul in jail. These are Christians who partake of the gospel and the ministry with Paul. They have a fellowship in and through Jesus that is unbreakable. They are co-partakers of grace. And we are partakers of grace. That when we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you come to enjoy the grace of God in your life that brings reconciliation to God, forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Spirit. This is grace. And it is yours, but it is not yours alone. We're told by Paul that we share this grace. That the basis of our our friendship, of our partnership, is in the grace provided by the gospel. Paul rejoices in this because he knows that he has partners who are with him even if he is alone in prison. What a reminder that our faith is personal, not private. That grace is personally experienced, but is publicly shared. In the same way, our faith is not meant to be practiced in solitude, but in fellowship, we are called to share burdens, as we are called to share the mission that God has given us, that Jesus has given us to go and bring gospel light. Do you guys know why geese fly in a V-shape? Do you know? Nope. Nobody? Anybody? Aerodynamics, wind resistance, yes. Scientists have determined there are a couple reasons why they do this. One, to conserve energy. Right? Each bird flies slightly above the bird in front of them, resulting in a reduction of wind resistance. So the burden is lightened because they're doing it together. The birds will take turns being out front, falling back when they get tired. And this way, the geese can fly for a long time. They can run the race. They can fly the race a long time before they have to rest and stop. The authors of a 2001 Nature article stated that pelicans, when they fly alone, beat their wings more frequently and have higher heart rates than those that fly in formation. 
they're less burdened when they're together. The second benefit to the V formation is that it's easy to keep track of every bird in the group. So they're looking out for one another. Church, these are the same benefits that are given to us as the body of Christ. That when we walk together, we are actually lightening the burden each of us have to carry. When we walk together, we are actually able to look out for one another, to care for each other. This is what the scripture tells us, right? To, to carry each other's burdens, to love one another. This is what we'll see in Philippians. Hey, don't think about serving yourself. Serve one another. We would be surprised how our needs can be met when we meet the needs of our brothers and sisters. This forces us to move past a superficial workplace relationship. And it is meant to create an affection between us, a bond between us, that we're not just saying we're family because God makes a family, but because we're actually walking with one another, because we know things about each other, because we're actually carrying each other's burdens. This is Paul's affection for the Philippians. Look at verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul's affection, his love for the people of Philippi, it lives deep inside him. It's guttural. And it drives him to his knees to pray for these people. It drives him to want what's good for his family. It gives him joy and a spirit of thankfulness for them. Again, it's what causes Paul to so desperately want to pray again and again for his brothers and sisters. And this is what he does in verses 9 to 11. So let's look at verses 9 to 11 as Paul prays that Jesus would continue the good work that he began for the day of Christ. And, verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Paul's his thankfulness, his joy, his affection has led him to pray for the saints in Philippi. And what's his prayer? The total sanctification of the Philippians that the same work he is confident Christ will complete would be done. Paul understands that though he is confident of the work Jesus will do in the people of Philippi, part of his role is to pray that work for the people of Philippi. He knows that God will use his prayer to bring about his promise. He's saying, Jesus, do the work you promise Perfect my brothers. Perfect my sisters. It would be the same for us. If I were to pray, God, you promised to complete the work in Enoch. Do the work. You promised to complete the work in Mary. Do the work. I am confident you're going to do it, and I know that how you will do it is through my prayer. Paul will pray that the people's love will abound more and more with knowledge 
with clarity and understanding. He's praying that the heart and mind would grow in their affection for Jesus. He sees that they go hand in hand. That it's not just a feeling, and it's not just a thought or information. That we grow in knowledge and we grow in love. That as our love increases for Jesus, that it drives us to know him more and more. And as we know more about Jesus, that drives us to love him more and more. And Paul prays this, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Again, this is the work he's talking about in verse 6. That as we start as newborns on milk and mature our way up to meat, we gain a better understanding of what Jesus wants in our lives. What really is good for us and those around us. That the gospel becomes clearer and and bigger and shapes more of how we think and live. This is a process of, of filtering, disapproving of what is subpar, not worth it, and saying yes to what is healthy and holy. When I was a kid, uh, one of the things that me and my cousin brother did is have a contest to see who could drink a cup of sugar the fastest. Yeah. I won. Yeah. Just want to put that, I just want to put that out there. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a couple of reasons why I would not do that today. Uh, first, it was really dumb. Uh, and second, my body could not handle that. I didn't know that back then, but I know that now, right, because I've grown up a little bit. Uh, no, I was actually fine. There's a lot of things as a 10, 11-year-old you can do that you can't do anymore. It's, yeah, it's uh, unfortunate. Uh, well, I know it can't now because I have a little bit of sugar and I get headaches and, yeah. So I, will, I, don't, I have not drunk a cup of sugar recently. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing. I'm guesstimating. It's too much sugar? Is that coming from a doctor's? Uh, okay. 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 Thank you, Vaughn. So there are things that we learn later in life, either by our doctors or just in simple wisdom, that are not good for us. No longer, help, no longer what we might think would be healthy and whole for us. And in the same way, Paul is praying for that for the Philippians that they would grow in their understanding of what actually should be good, what they should actually strive after and run towards. Paul is praying that they would grow to love Jesus, and as they grow to love Jesus, look more like him, which means saying yes to what is good, saying no to what is not. Paul prays for this process to continue so that they could be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus. That when Jesus comes back, we can be presented to him as holy, just like he is holy. And Paul tells us that we won't go empty-handed. He prays that we would be filled, verse 11, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That we would be filled with the good work that Jesus is doing in us. And what is that? It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, self-control. 
It's the partnership that Paul is talking about as the Philippians defend and proclaim the good news of Jesus, as they care for him and other believers. This is the fruit that Paul prays would be full of. But notice again, it comes through Jesus. It is Jesus' sanctifying work that fills us with fruit, but it's also Jesus' saving work that allows us to even produce fruit, to even have fruit. Our sins make it impossible to be full with the fruit of righteousness that Paul is praying in this moment. He already knows that in ourselves we are not right. That we are incapable of doing as he is praying. That the soil needs to be cared for. That we are broken, unable to to live as he is living right now. To be thankful for our gospel family. To produce lives of righteousness. But Paul's confidence in these first 11 verses, his confidence in His prayer comes because we've already experienced the work of Jesus. Jesus has already renewed the soil so that fruit can be bared. Jesus has made us new. Jesus who lived a life filled with the fruit of righteousness, who died on the cross for our sins, and in his death, we can be filled with that righteousness. Filled with forgiveness. Filled with a life made new. Paul understands that it is only through Jesus that we can truly benefit from the shared grace of Christ. And it is only through Jesus that we can be made ready for the day he comes back. But because Paul speaks with family, he trusts that God will answer his prayer. He's confident of it. Because they are partakers of the same grace that he has shared in. I think we could learn a lot from Paul's affection and his drive. His response that comes out of a love for God's people. That we would, like him, pray for God's sanctifying work in each other. So that we would be made ready for the day that Jesus comes back. That we, like Paul, would pray by name, for the Philippians. I'd encourage you to even use your membership list this week. Divide it up. Pray for the names on that paper. Pray for your brothers and sisters. If you don't know what to pray for, pray this passage. Text them. Find out how you can pray for them. Let us pray, as Paul does, for the people who he's been bonded to by the grace that Christ has displayed in him and in them. And for those of us who have perhaps in this season felt neglected, uncared for, going through hard times, some of you may be in a position like Paul, maybe not bound by physical chains, but maybe emotional, mental, financial, or other kinds of chains. It is not that you should ignore these things in your life, but I wonder what would change if we considered Paul's approach Paul's posture in a time of real, real suffering, that he found joy, maybe not in his own circumstances, but in family, that he prayed, not thinking first of himself, but of his family.
Paul is in prison, but he's not really bound. He's free because of Christ, his power, and because Christ has given him the strength to move out of himself, to think not of himself, but to think first of Jesus and also his brothers and sisters, the work that God is doing through them. Do we have this same joy in the family God has gifted us? Do we need to be reminded that the people in this room are a gift to us? That we don't have to just tolerate each other? That we shouldn't be tolerating each other? That doesn't mean at times we won't be burdens to one another, but we're a gift to each other. We get to walk with one another. We get to care for one another. If we don't recognize that, I would encourage all of us to pray. Pray that God would open your heart and your mind so that you can have affection and joy for the people in this room. So that you can thank God for the work he is doing through the people, through your brothers and sisters in this room. So that we can follow Paul's example and thank God for gospel family and continue to pray for the good work of Jesus in one another's lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for each other. God, it can be hard, it can be messy, it can be challenging to walk with so many different people. And yet, you call this a gift. Paul sees it as a gift. He finds reason to rejoice in his community. And I think we have reason to rejoice as well. Help us, Lord, to thank you for what you've given us in one another. Help us, Lord, to pray for each other, that you, Jesus, would do the work you began so long ago in each of us, that you would complete it, that you'd perfect us in every way. And may we be a people who rejoice in that work that's happening in one another. We pray these things in your son's precious name, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.